Now, ladies and gentlemen, I now declare this session of the Cottesloe Parliament well and truly open, and it's a great pleasure to introduce my right honourable friend here, Mr. P. Glenister, uh, who you may have seen in this extraordinary drama called This House, and this, this set is the set for This House, and it's you probably gather it's about uh, politics, and it's about that turbulent time in the 1970s where the Labour government of Harold Wilson then Jim Callaghan hung on to power by, kind of by means fair and often foul. And playing the deputy Labour chief whip, uh, Walter Harrison, was, is Philip Glenister. And you were, you were quoted recently as saying, Philip, that you were a bit nervous about working on stage because you mm. felt, well, what, are you nervous about it? And have you been nervous coming back to it after quite a long absence? Yeah, I was absolutely terrified. Yeah. Because I think the longer you leave it, I mean, you know, the, the beauty of doing television and film is that you can screw it up and go again and yes. screw it up and go again and screw it up and go again <laughs> until you're sort of happy with it mm -hmm. um, or until they're fed up with you screwing it up and going again. Um, and also then, of course, your performance is effectively taken away from you by an editor and chopped up and moved and hopefully um, they make it better or enhance it, uh, but occasionally they can make it worse, which is, or they leave something out that you think was rather good. Yes, good so point. once you're on the stage, you're kind of naked, effectively. Mm -hmm. this, is, this, this is it. You're up there and you're on. And, um, and so the longer you leave it, the harder it is, I think, to go back to it. And it was sort of overcoming that fear. And, you know, I think at the end of the day, it sort of sorts the men out from the boys when you mm -hmm. get on the stage. Um, and it was my erstwhile colleague and um, my, my television husband, Mr. John Sim, yes. who, who went back on stage mm -hmm. a few years ago in Elling and uh, sort of said, you know what, he said, I'm really glad I did that. And he got his um, sort of love for it mm. back. And he sort of, uh, sort of slowly edged me in and said, you mm. know, you, sh you should do it. Go for it. It's really worth doing. It's the most terrifying thing that first night you'll be... You know, he said when he was doing speaking in tongues, funnily enough, in the West End, he said he was that close to feigning having a heart attack. Right. Just because he thought, I can't be, I can't go on. He was just so frightened. Yes. He thought, I could just pretend to have a heart attack. No, can't be at a hospital. <laughs> Nobody would know. Yeah. But, um, well, the audience but, might, you know. But yeah, you know, yeah. yeah. But, um, so, but I'm so glad I did it. But also, it was very important to do a piece. I didn't really want to be doing, a, come back to, 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 to being on the stage and carrying a big show mm. with thousands of lines and never off and all that. Do you know what I mean? I, mm. I wasn't um, kind of ready for that. I, the, uh, so in, in many respects, this play was perfect because it's very much an ensemble piece. But the great thing about Walter and particularly Jack Weatherall, they're sort of like the engine through mm -hmm. the sort of emotional heart mm. of, the, of, the, of the play. Um, and, uh, and so in that respect, it was, it was uh, a, a no-brainer, really. So you were kind of looking for something and then this presented itself. Then, I wasn't, it? no, I wasn't looking for anything. I was, I was um, abroad. I was in Cape Town um, shooting a, a series I do for Sky called Mad Dogs. And um, I just suddenly, well, I was sitting there having a coffee. It was a day off <laughs> on my balcony thinking all is well with the world. <laughs> um, and um, I got a call from my agent said, look, you've been sent a load of plays. And I said, what? She said there's about four offers of, of mm -hmm. theatre. Uh, nice ones. I mean, one well, I think it was the Donmar and Royal Court and the Almeida and the National. Mm -hmm. um, and I was like, oh, no, 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 I don't, oh, God, no, 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 
No, no, no, no. <laughs> no. I'm sitting on a balcony in Cape Town having a cup of coffee. I'm, yes. like, oh, I'm going £4.50 in bleeding <laughs> SE1. Yes. Um, and uh, anyway, so, and I read uh, the, the plays and, and the three of them didn't really appeal, you know. Um, it, uh, that was the other thing. If I was going to go back into the theatre, it had to be something that I really, really wanted to do, that would really, uh, that I knew that I would have a good time. Um, and three of them just didn't grab me. Mm. And then it was this play, um, it was this house that just had something about it. It was something that just came off the page and um, I kind of connected with it, I guess. Mm. Um, so that's when the ball started rolling. And funnily enough, my agent, Jilly, had also read the other plays and dismissed the three that mm. I had and mm. said, I think the national. And also the plus, the great bonus of working here is that you're in rep. Yeah. And I'm such a lazy, you know, <laughs> bugger that and I get bored, bored very yes. easily. So to be doing eight shows a week in the West End, is, it's, it's pretty demanding. Mm. Physically and mentally, it's very demanding. I have done it once. Never again. Um, uh, and the beauty of being here is that you play in rep, so you're always coming back to it sort of fresh. Mm -hmm. um, so the nerves are always there. If you've had a week off and you come back to it, there's always that kind of slightly jingly jangly, you know. So, um, um, so it, it doesn't ruin your social life. You still have a bit of a life. See, I wondered if Jeremy Heron, the director, had having seen you in Life on Mars mm. and Ashes to Ashes, and Life on Mars is set more or less at the same time as or yeah. a bit of, of this house. Yeah. Well, they, they, you were sort of seen as the, the 70s man per excellence. I know. <laughs> bloody, bloody lazy casting. <laughs> Um, I know, it's sort of, yeah, I see anything set in the 70s and he's northern and a bit, bit brutish. <laughs> and a bit get, bullshit. Get Glenister. <laughs> he'll, he'll do it. Um, it. Do you know what? It's, it's one of those things. It wasn't, that wasn't the, the uh, appeal. I mean, if anything, I've been trying to avoid um, those sort of roles, mm. really. Um, but it was something about this play um, and the, the fact that it happened to be set in the 70s, I mean, that's... That was uh, James Graham's mm, choice. The fact that he chose to write about that period, the reason he chose to write about that period, um, it, well, twofold is firstly because there is a, um, you know, what we're seeing with our coalition at the moment, mm. there's a sort of comparison. And also it's, it is widely regarded by many as one of the most dramatic periods in post-war British political Absolutely, history, yeah. if not pre-war mm. as well. Um, and so the fact that he happened to be this, you know, it was a great part. It was, a, it was only part, really, that I looked at and thought, yeah, mm. I, I want to play this part. Um, so that was by the by. I mean, I, I, you know, it, it didn't worry me that... Uh, and he's very different. He's very different to Gene Hunt, Walter. Yeah. I mean, I think I should emphasise, for those who haven't seen the play, that it's not... You know, it's much more than a simple document docudrama about mm. what happened. Mm. I mean, I think it also asks questions about the political process, about the sort of people who want to work in politics. I mean, what are your, what's your kind of take on the, the deeper, the more profound issues of this play? What do they say about politicians? Showbiz for ugly people, mm -hmm. <laughs> That's right. isn't it? Um, Sorry, what was the question again, Al? Well, I, was, I was miles away. <laughs> I fit, was fit like I am on stage yeah, sometimes. That's right, you drift away. <laughs> I, was think, I was hoping that you might share your thoughts on the kind of the deeper themes of this house. I mean, it's, it's fascinating for political anorax. Yeah. 
this historical stuff. Uh, well, I think there's more. To, it's about human relations. Yes, it is. It? I think also you're talking about a period when um, these guys, particularly these 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 men, they were. It was very male dominated mm. again um, that period. And and you know, if you if you go to the Houses of Parliament now, there, there is still a feeling that, that this sort of this public school kind of feel to it. Mm. You know what I mean? And very male orientated yes. and, and dominant. Um, and I think this particular period, you, you're talking about a group of men. These guys were tough guys. I mean, they'd fought in wars, remember? Mm. They'd fought in probably the First and Second World Wars. Um, Suez, you know, look at the, the, the Colonel character, for instance. Yes, which, yeah. And I think it's an and Rupert mm. plays it wonderfully, but also there's that little moment in the speech where he says, there were days when I woke up and thought I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't see the sun. Mm, mm -hmm. It was an immensely moving mm -hmm, speech mm. as well. Um, and he delivers it beautifully. And um, so I think you're talking about a group of men that probably some of whom had killed another human being yeah. for whatever reason, for, for honor, for country, mm. for survival. So these were tough guys and didn't, for want of a better word, put up with any shit, mm. if you like. Um, so that was the, the first thought. And, and in comparison to what we have now, if you think about it, so many of our politicians, certainly you know, our, f uh, our current government mm. on the front benches, um, allegedly quite a few of them are millionaires, and they've all come from this sort of, the only thing they've kind of really seen are cloisters. So they started off with the cloisters of Eton or Harrow, the cloisters of Oxford or Cambridge, and now they're in the cloisters of Westminster. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, and, and so, so they're, they're, they don't have any sort of grip on, on reality mm. and what is going on, whereas the, the, someone like Walter um, was an electrician by mm. trade, was in the RAF. So he was actually there to represent the very people that he, he was himself. Mm. So he would have a say on it. And it seemed to be much more about that then as opposed to now, where it's much more about... It, it, it's not so much a, a job for, you know, serving, well, I'm sure they tell you differently, serving um, the, their community. It seems to me that it's much more about um, getting your name in the history books and, and ending up with your place in, in, you know. Well, I suppose they're also they're professional politicians, which the characters mm. in this house, as you say, you've got an ex-miner working in the whip's office. Yeah. You talk, you talk about the ex sort of Colonel Blimp figure working in the Tories. Mm. They've had experience of life rather than, as you say, of this continuous cloisterdom. Yeah, cloisters, yeah. Uh, and they end up, as you said, in another cloister. Yeah. I'd like to, I don't want to give away the relevance to the plot, but mm. I would like to ask you about the relationship between your character and Charlie Edwards, yeah. who plays Jack Weatherall. Jack Weatherall. Yes. Uh, because it seems to me that the author is, is saying something about these two guys. Well, what I was going to say, when I, uh, the other thing I, I really love about the play, I, I, you know, it's not a left-wing view, it's not a right-wing mm. view. It's a very balanced argument. And there's that wonderful scene with Vince and uh, where, where he sort of says, you know, the Tories are all about themselves mm. and looking after number one. And, and then Julian's character turns around and says, unlike Labour, that, you know, if, if it's shit for us, then it's got to be shit for everybody, mm. you know. So it's, uh, it's, a, it's a wonderfully sort of balanced, um, sort of ambiguous mm. tone mm. about the, the, the play. And I think um, the relationship between Walter and 
Jack. So you've got two men from completely opposite ends of the spectrum. You've got Jack Wetherill, who comes from a family of tailors, Savile Row. And then you've got Walter, who's from working class mm. stock in Yorkshire, and as I said, an electrician. And yet there's this, they had this extraordinary respect and friendship um, throughout all the years. And what's so touching uh, and, and very moving is the fact that up until Jack Wetherill died, they were in constant contact by letter. They wrote all the mm. time to each other. And when James went up to see Walter to, uh, when he was researching the play, um, Walter had all these pictures of him with Jack you know, in his house. Not put there for show, they're still up mm. there because he, he was regarded as one of his best friends. Um, and so there, there was this incredible bond between the two of them, although completely um, diametrically opposed to the, in their way of thinking politically, and yet this respect for each other as men and, and, and for their background, which I, and which I think really comes across in the play, and is great and is, it is wonderful to play, and, and, and I'm you know, um, immensely lucky to be working opposite somebody as fantastic as Charles, mm. who's brilliant. You know. And also I think it's a corrective against coming along and seeing a kind of knockabout farce, of which there is a lot in the play, yeah. that, that sort of views MPs as kind of figures of fun, Hmm. A kind of venal, corrupt, greedy, uh, you know, holding on to their own privileges as much as possible. Yeah. I mean, and that's all good, jolly. Was it ever thus? Was ever thus? But I think we wouldn't want to. We wouldn't enjoy the play as much if it was just a kind of knockabout. Let's beat up the politicians, kind of. No, absolutely. And I think you know what's what's again the structure of the play is that you just get to learn. I mean, we, I knew nothing about this thing of pairing, mm -hmm. you know, when you pair somebody off. And, and, the, and, and I think the, when we have a scene where we talk about it and we, we will discuss because we do race through it quite quickly. Mm -hmm. And I think, personally, that it's not that important that the audience understand the process of pairing. What I think is f far more important and far more interesting is the line that Giles has um, about Erskine May and the fact that mm -hmm. it's a gentleman's agreement. It's not by law, but it's been a centuries-old system. But it was, it was an agreement between the... And it's still to this day, it mm, still quite. happens. I think that's really interesting. Mm, mm. And that's what you, you, is made clear. And that's the best side of tradition, isn't it? That's where yeah. you admire that kind of custom rather than there being sort of pettifogging, silly rules that yeah. they, they live by. That kind of that yeah, absolutely. richness of, of Also, tradition. you know, they, back then there was a day when, it, you know, you look at the amount of media going on now with Twitter and mm. Facebook and, you know, you can't even fart without mm. it being reported, you know, <laughs> in some, and, it, and, and the people, I think that's created a terrible fear for people to have an opinion. Mm -hmm. um, and um, whereas back then, you know, before the cameras were in, I think it was a big mistake to allow cameras into the house. Really? Yeah, I do. That's interesting. Because I think they all play up to them. Yes. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know. Because they know they're being mm. watched. Yes, so they played Whereas in the gallery. Whereas if they just had the radio or the microphones, mm -hmm. there's a, a tendency to forget that you're mm -hmm. on the radio. But once you know a television camera there and they're all dotted around you. So did you did you meet the character, you, well, the, the man you played? I Walter didn't, Harris. unfortunately, no. And unfortunately, we, we heard recently that Walter, bless him, passed away just last Friday. Um, we sent him a DVD. And he obviously had a look at the show and <laughs> finished him off. Um, <laughs> But, uh, no, he did. He did pass away on mm. Friday at 91, I think mm -hmm. he was, which is quite sad. 
And have you had lots of politicians in to, of both the 1970s generation and the current? Yeah, we have. To see the show? Yeah, well, it, what's quite fun is a little mm -hmm. secret was because there's some scenes where, because they're too short to go off, we stay on, and there's a scene after I have with Vince, and when the lights go down, and I have a little roving eye. That's my little roving eye moment. See mm -hmm. who's in. Um, and then we had, but we had a bet, me and Phil Daniels the other night, Norman Tebbit was in, he was convinced, he was like, Tebbit's in, I was yeah. like, I said, where is he sitting? He's like, mm, yeah. <laughs> so I came out, I was like, that. I said, no way that's Tebbit, I don't anything like him. I went off and I said, it's not Tebbit, and he went, it's Tebbit, I went, tennis as I'm right. Um, and it, it wasn't Tebbit. So <laughs> it, was, Good uh, for you. it was Nick Robinson from the <laughs> Sorry, Nick. <laughs> But so, so yeah, that was quite fun, and mm -hmm. um, we had uh, David Owen was in quite early on and told us quite a funny story because he, uh, he 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 was always being wined and dined by Alan Clark, apparently, because mm -hmm. Alan Clark was was uh, David Owen said he said he, he was convinced he was going to turn turn me into a Tory, so he used to take me to Wilton's for lunch. <laughs> And then every time we, went, we met somebody of prominence, whether it was in the media or somebody important, he'd always introduce me as his bloody doctor. <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was quite fun. Quite. And we had the real Ann Taylor in, mm -hmm. who, was, um, who again gave us a line, which uh, when, I don't know how many people have seen the play, but there's a line in the play where we're talking about bringing Doc Broughton down. Mm for the vote, um, but he's too ill at this stage to travel because he has emphysema. And I have a line where I say, no, and she said, I'll ring the doc, we'll go, I'll go and get him, bring him down in the car. And I said, no, and it will kill him. To which she responds, but well, at least he'll die happy. Yes. And that line wasn't originally in the play, but when Ann Taylor mm -hmm. saw the play, she said, I remember that. And I said to Walter, at least he'll die happy. Mm -hmm. So of course, next so day, <laughs> it was in, you know. Mm. Anyway, let's go back to the beginning. Now, you, you come from a, a sort of showbiz family. We all know your elder brother, Robert. Who? Who, who yes. <laughs> Member of the, the Hustle, uh, well, not anymore because it's finished. Yeah. Grifters, but also often here at the National, most recently as Boothby and um, right, Never yeah. So Good, the play mm. about uh, Macmillan. Yeah. So he went off to be an actor, and your father was a distinguished TV drama director. Yeah. I mean, did he... But I get the feeling that he kept his work very separate from your home life. Yeah, very so much so. There, wasn't a, there weren't actors for lunch every Sunday, or he didn't take you no. into the studio much to see no, what no, he did. No, no, it was... Um, well, it was... Uh, it, I suppose, looking back, Robert knew very early on that he wanted to be an actor. Mm. He, he joined a youth theatre, and he had a very, very good... English teacher later on, Mr. Hickman, who, who was uh, a very good amateur actor, mm. very passionate about um, theatre and acting in the arts, and, um, and kind of acted as Robert's sort of mentor, mm. if you like. And then Robert joined the National Youth Theatre. So I think from, the, from quite an early age, from about the age of 10, Robert knew he wanted to be an yeah. actor. Whereas I, I was, you know, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Mm. I just wanted to do something that just paid well but didn't have to work too hard. Work too hard. Yeah. I thought, thought about being a milkman for a long time. <laughs> yes. I thought the hours were quite good. <laughs> be done by 10 and spend the rest of the day playing, staying home playing with your toys. <laughs> but um, then reality kicked in, of course. Um, so, yeah, so I, so I, although I kind of knew I'd quite like to be in the industry, I was always saw myself being sort of behind the scenes, more mm. like my dad, maybe directing or producing mm. or designing or something. So um, one of the things that, uh, as a treat, when I was young, it was a birthday treat, he used to take, take me and my best mate, Paul, to um, 
Television Centre. Mm -hmm. um, in the days when, you know, Television Centre was television actually centre, yeah. Television Centre, mm. te a centre for television, unlike it is today, um, which is just offices. Um, and so it was a, an immensely exciting place to be because, um, you know, you'd turn up on a Saturday and you know, you'd have Grandstand in that studio, mm -hmm. you'd have the Parkinson show up there, the Match of the Day, mm -hmm. the two Ronnies, mm -hmm. Norman Wise, Blue Peter, mm -hmm. Doctor Who. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's diversity of, of programmes. And, um, and, you know, it wasn't all filled with security guards all, you know, <laughs> yes. stopping you on every second yeah. and all that nonsense. <laughs> so you would quite, you know, just roam mm -hmm. around. Mm -hmm. And so we'd just go for a roam and, mm -hmm. and bump into... They would, I remember always they were filming Colditz there. Yeah. And we went up to get um, a cup of tea in sort of the green room area, and it was the most b bizarre sight walking through the door and seeing all these Nazis <laughs> having, <laughs> having an afternoon tea and a, and a, and a, and a, and a fag, you yes. know. And then Anthony, what was his name? Who played the commandant? Um, Anthony Valentine. Anthony Valentine, who my dad had worked with, and who was the real, you know. Yes. I always remember he was up against this thing, and he was smoking his Dunhill, and he's getting his cup of tea out of his foam cup. <laughs> he saw Mel Manning, and went, hello, Johnny, my darling. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And my dad was like, Tony, how are you? This is my son, Phil. He went, hi. And I was like, Jesus. This is a nasty bathroom. <laughs> and... Um, and then, you know, then the next week you've got Edward Fox and mm -hmm. Robert Wagner and mm -hmm. David McCallum. So I just got the autograph book out. Yes. Like, you know, getting the whole lot. And then the only one that was a bit curmudgeonly was Spike Milligan. Because um, he wasn't we, cool. Well, we went past his dressing room, mm -hmm. Spike Milligan. And Des, I think it was more for my dad. My yeah. dad was a yeah. fan of the goons yeah. when he was a kid, yeah. so it was more for him than me. And he said, well, just go and see Spikes. And he knocked on the door. He's like, what? And we said, oh, Spikes, John Gunnison. And he opened the door and he went, what? He said, can, I, can the boys just get your autograph? And he was like, if you must. And he was like, <laughs> so obviously it was one of his bad days. Exactly. And shut the door. Yes. And, Cheers, Spike. So, yeah. So you knew you wanted to be part of this sort of industry, but you didn't quite know. Yeah, uh, I didn't know in what form. Because you did very, I mean, you were, you were Robert Stigwood's office boy, uh, as he Steady. described. Steady, you put that. <laughs> exactly. God. Exactly. Um, and you must have come across Frankie Howard then. Yes, I did. And did, you, did he take an interest in you, Frankie? Yeah, he tried. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Mrs. Yes, well. <laughs> he, offered me, he offered me his coat. I was, it's just like the early 80s, and I mm -hmm. had used to, you know, being, well, I, wasn't, I was never fashionable, but, mm -hmm. I, uh, you know, we didn't have a lot of money. Um, and so I used to go and buy my clothes or coats, particularly from Oxfam shops. Mm. That was the sort of yeah. the thing to do. Yeah. You get these long old granddad coats, yeah. you know, yeah. down to there and all that. And so I had this great old sort of uh, herringbone mm. thing that I used to wear. I used to live in it, even in like the middle of summer. I still fucking herringbone on. I sweat <laughs> a lot. And I remember um, Frankie Howard coming into the office, and I was in the foyer, and he was like, "Oh, jokes." Mm, oh, you. And I was like, oh, Jesus. And, um, and he said, what's this? And I said, it's my coat, you know? And he said, that's not a coat. This is a coat. And he took his, it's like from Marks and Sparks, you know? Like, so he put his coat on me like that. And I was like, no, no you're all right. I'll keep mine. <laughs> but yes, he was a strange man. Well, quite, yes. And then you tied your hand at film publicity. Is that right? I did. I sort of fell into that by chance. Mm. I just was drifting mm. through various right. things. And, and again, I mean, I was a lousy publicist. I was dreadful. But mm -hmm. the, the, the great joy for me was gonna, going to see movies. Mm -hmm. So on a Monday morning, when the rest of my friends were going off to do proper day's work, mm -hmm. I was going off to rank um, 
screening to yes. see a new movie. And then, you know, again, I got to meet some really interesting people. As a member, um, um, what's his name? God, Billy Crystal. Mm -hmm. and we'd done this movie called Throw Mama from the Train. It was just this little ranks theatre that ain't very small. And he came and basically did a stand-up routine, you know. Mm -hmm. And people knew him sort of from that soap program yeah. in the States. And he was just starting out in the movies, but he just did this whole stand-up routine. And um, and another time, um, I sat in an interview with Alan Parker when he was talking about Angel Heart. Yeah. And he was talking, comparing De Niro with Mickey Rourke and how Mickey Rourke was trying mm -hmm. to out De Niro, De Niro, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, and all this stuff. And it was just, and, yes. I, and I used to just say, I was quite blatant, I used to just say to him, I said, do you mind if I sit in? Mm -hmm. And I said, if you want. And I remember Alan Parker, bless him, because we did it in Browns in Mayfair. And I didn't have a tie, and, he, and they wouldn't let me in because I didn't have a tie. And Alan Parker went, he's with me. <laughs> <laughs> Tyler's with Tyler's But with you Alan. must have then, you were used to handling actors. You were setting up interviews yeah. for them. So yeah. that must be quite interesting for you to be on the other side of the It was. And, uh, well, th there were certain films that I, I was, I was never good with the blockbusters. Mm. I remember I, um, I used to much prefer the sort of smaller budget, the, one, the, the, the ones that have been made with love. Sort of you know what I mean? Picture, yeah. yeah. Um, and the ones that didn't have the huge publicity mm. budget, that didn't have the, the, the Hollywood bucks behind it. And I remember being given Rambo, and I was like, oh. I used to deal with the, the other great thing, I used to deal with the regional press, yeah. so it was much, much nicer yes. than the London press, mm. because the London press felt that they were owed, quite. you know, lashings mm. of ginger beer and yes. cakes, and it was just the norm for yeah, them. Quite. Whereas the regions, you mm. know, half the time they were reporting about a cat being stuck up a tree. Mm. Suddenly you say, do you want to meet Sylvester Stallone? Yeah. They're like, oh. <laughs> You know, it's a day out for yes. them. So they were always much politer mm. and nicer to deal with. Um, but I remember d getting the Rambo film and just seeing it and thinking, oh, gee, this is horrendous. Mm. Um, and it had like a million quid uh, as a, a budget for, mm. to promote the thing. Um, and I had these press releases to do. And I, just, and I was also doing a film called Dream Child, which is a very low budget mm. film with Cole Brown, which Gavin Miller had directed. It was a beautiful film. Alice and, yeah, exactly, Alice which I thought was a wonderful film. Mm. Um, <coughs> and um, so I used to just, I remember one day getting all these Rambo press releases and I just hid them in the car, under the carpet <laughs> in Beak Street, the offices in Beak Street, <laughs> never sent them out. <laughs> and I sent all these dream child yes. ones out in their place. Yes. So, don't see this shit, see this. <laughs> you know, and they're probably still there somewhere. Yes, but I'm not sorry for it. No, quite. <laughs> well, you, you made, but you eventually did succumb to the, 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 the call of the stage, as it were. Now, is it yeah. true that you were an amateur production yeah. and... Robert, who was then married to Amanda Redmond, yeah. going out with her, they came to see you and said to you, you know, yeah, you well, should do this. Well, what happened? I, I was um, a friend of mine's girlfriend. How it all began? A friend of mine's girlfriend was in an Amdram group, mm -hmm. and we were all in the pub one night. We had a few too many, and she said, oh, "Why don't you come and be? Who wants to be in the panto? We're doing a panto this year." I can't remember what it was, and I just sort of said, "I'll do it." Yeah, mm -hmm. laugh. And so um, I ended up doing this panto, and I and I remember. And they all took it very seriously. I'd had done a bit of Amdrams because my mum was quite a good Amdram mm. actress and she was in Amateur Dramatic, the Hatch End Players. And every time they needed a kid, it was either me or my friend Fraser Duffy. And sometimes both of us, yes. know, double act. Um, and um, so anyway, I remember doing this Amdram show and it was all very, very serious and, you know, panto. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> and, and I remember coming on stage and for some reason I had a guitar. I don't know why, but I did. And there was this bit of scenery, this like pillar. And I remember swinging round, and I was playing like it was the, 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 the comedy double act, yeah. and I was the comedy mm. one, and mm. I was the Morecambe sister, mm. whatever it was, his wife. And I remember swinging this guitar round and catching this piece of scenery. 
and just watching, like in slow motion, this huge piece of scenery going over like that. And there was this group of Cub Scouts in the front, and I missed them by about that much. It was one of those sort of slow like, ooh, Jesus. But it got a huge laugh. Yes. Right, and I thought, ooh, this is quite, I quite like this. This is all right. And then I became this sort of, um, you know, then I got asked to do various shows for different Amdram groups mm -hmm. around the Harrow area where I grew up. Um, you know, they go, you do wild, Oscar? I was like, <laughs> I'm wild, I'm livid, kid. Yes. You know? I don't know. So um, I started doing that, and then that's when Robert and Amanda mm -hmm. came to see me in something, and it was Amanda who basically said, have you thought about mm -hmm. applying for drama school? Because you could, you, you, you've got the talent to do this. Mm -hmm. You could do it if you want to. And I, was, and I, was, I wasn't very happy being a publicist. I'd, I kind of exhausted all that. Really. Yes. I was, you know, bored by that time, um, and so um, I applied for drama school without telling anybody. Only Amanda and Robert knew about it. I didn't tell my parents because mm. I was worried that, you know, my dad used to jokingly say after seeing something, you know, you're, you're not going to do it professionally, though, are you? Mm. Two, two <laughs> actors in the family, too yes. much. So it was a kind of. It was almost like he could do this, mm. but. Yeah. So I, d I did audition speeches with Amanda coaching mm -hmm. me and um, Shakespeare and uh, I think I did something from Brighton Beach Memoirs which Robert was doing here yes. at the time. Um, it wasn't his speech, it was Stephen McIntosh who played the part. Anyway, that's by the by. And then went to private drama schools, got offered a place in a few and, and um, decided on Central. Mm -hmm. And I always remember telling my dad. And uh, we were sitting around a Sunday lunch one time and Amanda said, I think uh, John, Phil's got something to tell you. And I was like, oh. <laughs> he was like, well, what's that, what's that? Mm -hmm. And I said, um, I've been offered a place at drama school. And he did, and I always remember this, he went, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and I went, well, Joe, cheers, thanks, yes. John. Mm -hmm. And he went, which one? And I, and I think he expected me to say, you know, Mrs. Ramsbottom, yes. sort of <laughs> school of drama in, Dramatic in art. Clacton. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I said, Central. And he went, what? <laughs> and I went, well, what, the Central? I mm. said, yeah, Central School of Speech and Drama. He went, bloody hell. <laughs> um, he said, and then there was a sort of, and then he was great after that, and he came up to me um, by tea time <laughs> and said, uh, look, if you really want to do it, then go I for mean, it. I mean, why was he so against it? Uh, I think it's the insecurity. Right. It's just the insecurity, and, uh, and I think my mum was, was desperate for one of us to be a lawyer or, right, something, or sensible, something sensible, yeah. you know. Because um, I half wondered, I mean, was one of perhaps your reluctance to do it because Robert had done it? And as I remember, he kind of, it was a thing with Peter Davidson, wasn't it? Sink or Swim, a yeah. sitcom. And he kind of, you know, he was always doing well, it seems, mm. as far as one can tell. Yeah. Did, you, did you think that maybe, well, he was the actor of the family, I want to prove myself in something different because he's my big brother, or...? No, no not nothing really. like that. I thought, no, he needs a rival. <laughs> <laughs> And he's got one now. Got one. Um, mm. No, I, I, it was just finding something that I wanted to do um, and enjoyed doing. That mm. was my criteria for going into the, the working world. It, it, it might not have been acting. I mean, it wasn't my first choice. It, ideally, I would love to have been a professional tennis player, but I wasn't good enough. Mm. And I wasn't dedicated enough. And I didn't mm. have that, that, you know, I was a decent player, but no, you know, not what you need to make a living mm. and um, do well. So. It was really finding something that I was, could be good at, I thought could be good at, um, and, and maybe make a living. And I thought, well, if it doesn't work out, then I can go back to doing something behind yeah, the scenes yeah. or being a publicist or whatever. Well, but yeah. I just wanted to get... I would have always regretted not giving it a go. Mm. 
And I think once the fact that I got this place at Central was, was a booster for myself mm. as well, because it was a, one of the top schools. Mm. I think at the time, Central, Bristol, yeah. Rada, Lambda, and Rugby Douglas, where they were still tall. Um, and, um, so it, and, and also, I hadn't been to university, so it was kind of my university as well. Um, and so it was three years of just having a really great time. Mm. Quite honestly, and I mean, did you you did pretty well when you you came out? I mean, you were yeah. sort of picking up some quite a lot of theatre, and then Terry was beginning to mm. notice a bit more of you. You know, Calendar Girls, the film, and mm. Cranford, but then Gene Hunt enters your life, and was it a yeah. sort of moment when you picked up the script and thought, right, this is yeah, this is the the moment. My yeah. moment's arrived. Yeah, I well, it wasn't so. I just knew it wasn't so much. Oh, because you know, you you don't know. Nobody can to preempt or guess, second guess, what's mm. going to be a success in this industry. And anybody that says they, they no. do is lying. You know, you just don't. Um, but all I knew, that I remember the day my agent phoned me up again, and she said, this thing called Life on Mars, they're sending you a script, they want to see you next week. Um, she said, it sounds a bit weird to me. And I said, well, what is it? She said, well, they've described it as a cross between um, Back to the Future and the Sweeney. <laughs> and, I, and I said to her, I said, it sounds great to me, you know, because I love the Sweeney as yeah. a kid growing up. And then so I got this script, and then the first, I remember reading the first 14 pages thinking that it was, you know, that sort of bit before Tyler gets knocked mm -hmm. over, so it's back in time. So I was just reading it, it was just like any old sort of cop drama, really. And, you think, and then suddenly, page 15, you know, bam, gets knocked over, and pan back, shot of um, the Mancunian Way coming soon, mm -hmm. life on Mars blaring out, Sam Tyler's like dressed in the, and then I, then, then I was like, wow. Mm -hmm. And then the first moment when, you know, Gene, as he was called Gene Burroughs originally, right. Gene Hunt. Um, and, uh, and it was just one of those scripts that I just read and couldn't put down. Thought it was very funny, very mm -hmm. clever. Mm -hmm. And I knew immediately how to play Gene Hunt. Right, just, just like that. Just instinct. Yeah. It was so well, I think it's mm -hmm. because it was so well written that it just screamed off the page. And it was just, so when I went to meet them for the interview, for the audition, um, I just kind of went in and just did it like that, and apparently, according to Matthew and Ashley, who wrote the show, when they were going through the tapes, they got to mine and just both of them paused it. This is what they tell me anyway. Yeah. They would say that, wouldn't they? <laughs> and they paused it and went, Phil Glenister, yeah. he's Gene Hunt. That's the one. That's, that's the, the one. one. Uh, was it that's our Gene. Yes, and they, our and Gene. they had to go and convince, you know, oh, how's it be? Up, yes, up quite. Up, up, up on the fourth floor. Mm. I mean, was it because you were interested in the Sweeney that made you feel comfortable in the kind of character of a 70s? I just thought he was a much larger-than-life character, yeah. and it was just nice to, you know, I, I'd been used to playing characters, mm. like particularly someone like Vanity Fair, mm. which is lovely, and yes. playing someone like Captain Dobbin, Dobbin, who's very repressed in many respects, so mm. you're not giving much away, mm. and playing those sort of characters, so it was kind of nice to just, you know, have the, have the stable doors open and just go boom, mm. and, you know, uh, uh, and you couldn't really overdo Gene Hunt, because he was such a big character, yes. that if you underdid it, then it wouldn't mm. work, you know, and then playing opposite John, of course, and we'd worked together off and on a mm. few times, mm. and um, we sort of jokingly said that we'd guested in each other's shows. You know, yes. guested in Clocking Off, and I'd guested in um, in State of Play, mm. and then th th where we were sort of put together as this sort of double act. But I, at the time when we were shooting, when we started shooting, and we had no idea. I remember our director coming over to us saying, "The rushes, they look great." He said, I, "We said, well, what, how's it looking? Is it?" Right, mm -hmm. and he said. I, he said, you know what? It's going to go one of a, um, one or two ways. Either this is going to be mega, or we're all going to die on our asses and right. never work again. Yeah, so, so <laughs> right, I'm just hoping it goes mega. <laughs> yes. Um, 
But uh, it was great fun to do as well. And I remember walking onto that set of the, of the CID office and, it, and the props table, and it was just like, wow, back in the 70s. Mm. And, the, and, and I remember <laughs> there was a scene where I had to be shaving and then put a bit of aftershave on like that. And there was this bottle of Old Spice. <laughs> and I opened it, and I could still smell, you know, the 70s. And I just 70s. went around the room going, hey, everybody, <laughs> who wants to smell Christmas in the 70s? 70s. <laughs> and everybody, every, everybody got to it. Oh, man, it's Christmas. <laughs> and that was, put, that was John and I's research. People say, what research did you do? So we went into <laughs> great detail. I say exactly what research we did. I watched the DVD of Match of the Day from the 1970s. Mm -hmm. John watched the box set of the Sweeney. He wore Old Spice, I wore Brute. Brute. That was the research. <laughs> But I mean, did, uh, did the writers see him as a villainous character? Was it uh, yeah. like Lambert Larue, you know, Pravda? Yeah, I think he was meant to be much darker. Right. Um, originally, he was meant mm. to be this real—he was uh, meant to be this real, uh, real representation of mm. the times. Mm. This real nasty bastard, mm. if you like, that stood for everything that was wrong mm. about the police force back in the 1970s. But you know, they'd written all these fantastic lines yeah. that he actually was a very, very fun character and then that was and, and obviously the more we did it the more Matthew and Ashley were seeing what I was doing mm -hmm. and so they were going with that as well and they sort of almost writing for me playing Gene yes. you know what I mean and then playing off sound and I and I think you know yes it could have been played very much as kind of you know mm. but it wouldn't have been at all interesting no, it wouldn't no. have, and it wouldn't have been quirky and I think we you know at the bottom line it's a time it's a show about time travel it's not real yes. you know but we have, I mean, we have to be interested not just in Sam's story and then mm. in uh, the girl's story later on, but also in Gene as well. I mean, why do you think Gene appealed to the public so immediately? Is he like, is he saying things we all think? Yes, I think, I think it was a sign of the times. I think it articulate. was, you know, we had this sort of a very, this sort of nanny state thing mm. coming in and every time anybody sort of dared to have an opinion or go against... Mm. Um, this whole political correctness thing, which up to a point was okay, but yeah. then it starts getting silly, mm. and it says, "Well, what line can you do? You draw? Do, can you cross mm -hmm. without offending mm -hmm. everybody and anything?" And and then people jumping on bandwagons, and then the lawyers come out and suing, and it's just you know nonsense. Mm. So this guy suddenly comes along, says it like it is, calls a spade a spade, yeah. and everybody goes, "Wow, he's our spokesperson! Yes, Thank God!" And I'm convinced that's why he was such a popular character. Mm because he was speaking on behalf of people who, weren't, who were too fearful yeah. for either being branded a racist or misogynistic or whatever, mm. when they weren't any of those things. I mean, is he a good, a good cop in the sense that is he a professional? Is he good at his job? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And I think, you know, the, the bottom line is that what I liked about Gene, he always went after the bad guy. He was the sheriff. Very much about life on Mars, it was a Western. Mm -hmm. You know, I always saw him as being the sheriff as he did, he was the sheriff, in, in the, Man the Mancunian sheriff, mm. basically. It was, it was Gary Cooper, it was high noon time. And, um, you know, they were very clever in who they cast opposite in terms of the villains. Mm. They made them nicely villainous, so yes. Gene always looked nicer <laughs> than they did. Yeah. You know, so when he did throw them around a room yeah. a bit, everybody went like, corner. hey! Yeah. <laughs> you know? But um, what was scary is then you meet the real police, and they go, oh, no, 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 my BCI was twice as bad as <laughs> I mean, do you think, as you were suggesting, it was a case of the character and the actor coming together in a, in a wonderful mm. harmony. I mean, would you like to play him again? Do you think there's more mileage in him? Well, some, if you get the you the know, I mean, I, right? I also became very, very protective of the character because it mm. had been such a great character, been such a good uh, thing for my career as mm. well. I mean, I mean, 
you know, they say you need three things in this business. You need talent, technique, and luck, and out of the three of them, luck is always the one. And it, it, that was my moment, my, luck, my, my lucky moment. So because of that, I've always felt very protective of the character, although I didn't create him, obviously. But I would never want... This is why we finished it when we did, with Ashes to Ashes. It was always going to be three series. Yeah. That was the agreement. Mm. The writers had agreed it. Kudos, we had mm. as the actors. So it was always going to be three and out. Because, you know, once you start getting into the realms of going beyond your sell-by-date, and what I didn't want was for people to go, do you know, I remember when Gene Hunt was really good, and now it's just mm. series 10, yes. episode 4. <laughs> it's really boring. Yeah. yeah. You know, and, and I really didn't want that to happen. So always leave the public wanting a bit more. Is oh, well, I, absolutely. Look at mm. Faulty Towers. It's yeah. the best example of that. Mm. 12 and out, and it's still shown, and it's still, you know, um, it, 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 it's still right up mm. there. Now, we were, I was doing one of these with Christopher Eccleston a few months ago. Oh, yeah. And Chris tells us that he was an usher at the National. Well, he was at Central. Oh, was he? And I gather that you were also did a bit of ushering. Yeah. Tell us about your ushering. At my the ushering days. <laughs> well, that was a bit of nepotism on my brother's part, actually, because he was here as an actor doing a couple of plays. Mm -hmm. And I was um, a penniless student at just starting out at Central. And I just asked him, I said, look, can, I, um, can you get me a job? Like, you know, I should just tearing ticket, mm. whatever. And he said, I'll have a word. Mm. He did it quite reluctantly. Oh, <laughs> oh, cheers, mate. <laughs> and um, so, so, yeah, so he got me a job. Mm -hmm. And my house manager was a chap called Toby Whale, who's now gone on to become a very successful casting director mm. and indeed cast the last, or the, the whole of Ashes to Ashes, mm -hmm. which was quite funny. Mm. Um, and so I, I became uh, an usher three nights a week. I did, th I did three nights a week here, and I did two nights at the RSC making bacon sandwiches. <laughs> And giving uh, players cast, big players cast people. They, they, I remember this one fella was at the RSC. He used to always come up and ask for a cup of hot water with lemon. Yes. And he was like an extra. He was like players cast. Yeah. He me lines. Yeah. <laughs> I said, "What do you want that for?" He said, oh, "Throw." It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't got anything to say. You know what I mean? What's all that about? So, so I used to do bacon sarnies yeah. twice a week and then at the RSC at the Barbican, mm -hmm. and then. Um, and then come here three nights a week and tear tickets. So were you famous for your bacon sarnies at the RSC? They were pretty good. Yes. They were pretty good. Who was good. your best customer then? Could you remember? Oh, well, lovely old act. John, John, not John Woodbine, John Carlyle. John Carlyle, yes. And I used to get, he used to make me laugh. He used to, I used to be finishing my shift and going, going to the pub afterwards, me and my friend Gordon. And, um, and John Carlyle would get in the lift. He'd just, just come off stage. And I don't know what he was doing, but he was coming ragged. He was sweating his wig. And you go, there's a big lift. Silence, and you go, going down the boozer. Be <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, and you go, bloody good. That so you it. must have sat in and asked on quite a few of Robert's uh, performances then. In the oh, God, yeah, area. I used to try and get off his shows. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you might have given him a I few notes go, I did, I used to go around and go, I've got your notes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm um, not surprised. <laughs> no, everybody used to try and get off the Hamlet. No offence, but it used to go on for about four days. Yes. Daniel Day-Lewis's Hamlet. Oh, right, yes. And God, it went on. <laughs> it, it, yeah, there was always mm -hmm. shows that, you know, you, what the thing was, it was like you used to suck up to your house manager mm -hmm. and then anybody new would come on and be like, have you seen Hamlet? Mm -hmm. Got to see Got Hamlet. <laughs> Hamlet. Love it. So I'm a student, see Hamlet, see how it's done. So throw them in, be like, right, I'm on the cots, I'm on Entertaining Strangers, go home by 9.30, um, and the other, the other one I remember doing, when I, where, which was quite funny, was I was in the Olivia. They were doing Anthony and Cleopatra mm. with Judy Dench and uh, Tony Hopkins. And, um, and you know, you, there's this thing for latecomers. Mm -hmm. And uh, you're given the sign, 
the latecomers and the, with the shape of the Olivier goes right down to the stage. And, and I had this group of um, ladies of a certain age mm -hmm. who were a bit late. The coach was late. And there were about eight of them. And they were in rows sort of that D, mm. pretty near the front, to the, to the side like that. Anyway, I'm peeking through the door like this and the light's going down. And I'm like, right, we're on. Girls, come on. <laughs> Face down. You know, and they're sort of get, getting in the aisle like that. Bloody lights come up. Hopkins is like there. He's right, he's like my eye like. It's one of those sort of yeah, it's, cartoon yeah, moments. I'm like that. I'm like, <laughs> and he's like there. And he looks at me, I look at him. And I just literally go, these ladies, and get on. And apparently he put a note in complaining, saying, what was that about the ladies? Like, oh, yeah. dear. And on that arousing note, I'm afraid, ladies and gentlemen, I see the clock has defeated us, that the sitting is very nearly over. So please, will you join me in thanking our guest, the Prime Minister of Equity, Mr. Philip Webster. Marvellous. Thank you, everybody.